Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Today's episode, Blood Meridian, is supplemented on my Substack with a paid subscribers-only episode with another hour and a half of discussion with several friends of mine, which gives further insight into the work. There are also two other new paid subscriber episodes up, one on MK Ultra and the Unabomber, which you may have heard on iTunes and Spotify. There's another one, maybe two hours of supplemental discussion on the paid episode, and there's also... An entire episode on Balenciaga and the Epstein Network, which is about three hours long. So for $5 a month or $50 a year, you can get this plus a bunch of other paid subscriber-only content at www.astroflight.substack.com. The link will be in the show notes. Thank you and enjoy. The internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore. In the murky darkness of virtual places... There could be dragons, shabbats, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we will discover a golden god who can reach the side of the ocean floor. They bivouacked by the tank in the ferry or salt in the shoes and they worked on the wagons by firelight far into the night they set forth in a crimson dawn where sky and earth closed in a razorous plain out there dark little archipelagos of cloud and the vast world of sand and scrub shearing upward into the shoreless void where those blue islands trembled and the earth grew uncertain gravely canted and veering out through the tinctures of rose and the dark beyond the dawn to the uttermost rebate of space they rode through regions of particolored stone, upthrust in ragged kerfs and shelves of trap rock, rearing in faults and anticlines, curved back upon themselves and broken off like stumps of great stone tree bowls and stones the lightning had clove open, seeps exploding in streams in some old storm. They rode past trap dikes of brown rock running down the narrow chimes of the ridges and onto the plain like ruins of old walls. walls. Such auguries everywhere of the hand of man before man was or any living thing. They passed through a village and then, excuse me, they passed through a village then and now in ruins, and they camped in the walls of a tall mud church and burned the fallen timbers of the roof for their fire while owls cried from some arches in the dark. The following day on the skyline to the south they saw clouds of dust that lay across the earth for miles. They rode on, watching the dust until it began to near, and the captain raised his hand for a halt and took from his saddlebag his old brass cavalry telescope and uncoupled it and swept it slowly over the land. The sergeant sat his horse beside him, and after a while the captain handed him the glass. Hell of a herd of something. I believe it's horses. How far off do you make them? Hard to tell. Call Candelario up here. The sergeant turned in motion for the Mexican. When he rode up, he handed him the glass, and the Mexican raised it to his eye and squinted. Then he lowered the glass and watched with his naked eyes, and then he raised it and looked again. Then he sat his horse with the glass at his chest like a crucifix. Well, said the captain. He shook his head. What the hell does that mean? They're not buffalo, are they? No, I think maybe horses. Let me have the glass. The Mexican handed him the telescope and he glassed the horizon again and collapsed the tube shut with the heel of his hand and replaced it in his bag and raised his hand as they went on. 
They were cattle, mules, horses. There were, sever- there were, s- there were several thousand head, and they were moving quarterwise towards the company. By late afternoon, riders were visible to the bare eye, a handful of ragged Indians mending the outer flanks of the herd with their nimble ponies, others in hats, perhaps Mexicans. The sergeant dropped back where the captain was riding. What do you make of that, captain? I make it a parcel of <laughs> I make it a parcel of heathen stock thieves is what I make it. What do you think? Looks like it to me. The captain watched through the glass. I suppose they've seen us, he said. They've seen us. How many riders do you make it? A dozen, maybe. The captain tapped the instrument in his gloved hand. They don't seem concerned, do they? No, sir, they don't. The captain smiled grimly. We may see a little sport here before the day is out. The first of the herd began to swing past them in a pail of yellow du- in a pall of yellow dust, rangy slat ribbed cattle with horns that grew g- a goggle, and no two alike, and small thin mules, coal black that shouldered one another and reared their metal-shaped heads above the backs of the others, and then more cattle, and finally the first of the herders riding up in the outer side and keeping the stock between themselves and the mounted company. Behind them came a herd of several hundred ponies. The sergeant looked for Candelario. He kept backing along the ranks, but he could not find him. He nudged his horse through the column and moved up the far side. The lattermost of the drovers were now coming through the dust, and the captain was gesturing and shouting. The ponies had begun to veer off from the herd, and the drovers were beating their way towards this armed company met with company met with on the plain. Already you could see through the dust on the ponies' hides the painted chevron and hands and rising suns and birds and fish of every device like the shape like the shade of old work through sizing on canvas, and now too you could hear above the pounding of the unshod hooves the piping of the kina. Flutes made from human bones, and some among the company had begun to saw back on their mounts, and some to mill a confusion when up from offside these ponies rode a fabled horde of mounted lancers and archers bearing shields, bedlight with bits of broken mirror glass that cast a thousand unpieced suns against the eyes of their enemies. A legion of horribles, hundreds in number, half naked or clad in costumes, attic or biblical or wardrobed out of a fevered dream with the skins of animals and sink finery and pieces of uniform still tracked with blood of prior owners. Coats of fl- slain dragoons, frogged in braided cavalry jackets, one in a stovepipe hat and one with an umbrella and one with white stockings and a blood-stained wedding veil, and some in headgear of crane feathers or rawhide helmets that bore the horns of bull or buffalo, and one in a pigeon-tailed coat worn backwards and otherwise naked, and one in the armor of a Spanish one in the armor of a Spanish conquistador, the breastplate and pauldrons deeply dented with old blows of mace and saber done in another country by men whose very bones were dust, and many with their braids spliced up with their hair of other beasts, until they trailed upon the ground and their horses' ears and tails worked with bits of brightly colored cloth, and one whose horse's whole head was painted crimson red, and all the horsemen's faces gaudy and grotesque, with daubings like a company of mounted clowns, death hilarious, all howling in a barbarous tongue, and riding down upon them like a horde from hell, more horrible yet than the brimstone hand of Christian reckoning, screeching and yammering and clothed in smoke like those vaporous beings in regions beyond right knowing where the eye wanders and the lip jerks and drools. Oh my God, said the sergeant. A rattling drove of arrows passed through the company and men tottered and dropped from their mounts. 
Horses were rearing and plunging, and the mongrel hordes swung up along the flanks and turned and rode and f- rode full upon them with their lances. The company was now come to a halt, and the first shots were fired, and the gray rifle smoke rolled through the dust as the lancers breached the ranks. The kid's horse sank beneath him with a pneumatic sigh. He had already fired his rifle, and now he sat on the ground and fumbles with his shot pouch. A man near him sat with an arrow hanging out of his neck. He was bent slightly as if in prayer. The kid would have reached for the bloody hoop iron point, but then he saw that the man wore another arrow in his breast to the fletching, and he was dead. Everywhere there were horses down and men screaming, and he saw a man who sat charging his rifle while blood ran from his ears, and he saw men with their revolvers disassembling, trying, excuse me, he saw men with their revolvers disassembled, trying to fit the spare-loaded cylinders they carried, and he saw men kneeling who tilted and clasped their shadows on the ground, and he saw men lanced and caught up by the hair and scalps standing, and he saw horses of war trampled down and fallen, and a little white-faced pony with one clouded eye leaning out of the murk, and it snapped at him like a dog and was gone. Among the wounded, some seemed dumb without understanding, and some were pale through the masks of dust, and some had fouled themselves or tottered brokenly onto the spears of the savages. Now driving in a wild frenzy of headlong horses with eyes walled and teeth cropped and naked riders with clusters of arrows clenched in their jaws and their shields winking in the dust and up the far side of the ruined ranks in a piping of bone flutes and dropping down off the sides of their mounts with one heel hung stretched neck of the ponies until they had circled the company and cut their ranks in two and then rising up again like funhouse figures some with nightmare faces painted on their breasts riding down the unhorsed saxons and spearing and clubbing them and leaping from their mounts with knives and running about on the ground with a peculiar bandy-legged trot like the creatures driven to alien forms of locomotion and stripping the clothes from the dead and seizing them up by the hair and passing their blades about the skulls of the living and the dead alike and snatching aloft the bloody wigs and hacking the chopping at the naked bodies ripping off limbs heads gutting the strange white torsos and holding up great handfuls of viscera genitals some of the savages so slathered up with the gore that they might have rolled in it like dogs and some who fell upon the dying and sodomized them with loud cries to their fellows And now the horses of the dead came pounding out of the smoke and dust encircled with flapping leather and wild manes and eyes whited with fear like the eyes of the blind and some with feathered arrows and some lanced through and stumbling and vomited blood as they wheeled across the killing ground and clattered from sight again. Dust stanched the wet and naked heads of the scalped who with the fringe of hair below their wounded and tonsured head to the bone now lay like maimed and naked monks in the blood-slaked dust, and everywhere the dying groaned and gibbered, and horses lay screaming. So that is a sobering passage. I hope I did it justice. If you've never read this book, um, that passage will certainly stick with you. Now the setting here, for those of you who haven't read it, is that the kid is the main character, and he's taken up with a group of filibusterers, or irregulars. A filibusterer is basically a, a, a warrior or soldier who's in a foreign land where he waged war. And he stays on after the war is over, uh, continuing the work of a soldier, but this time for private pay. It's also what an irregular troop is. It's basically an illegal group of men who are carrying out uh, military objectives for someone, usually the government of the country they're living in, uh, illegally in the sense that the war is over and uh, they are now beholden to uh, 
you know, standard legal crimes. So this happened in real life. There was a real group of filibusterers after the Mexican-American War. Because up until about 1850, the Great Plains uh, were contested over in northern Mexico by the Spanish, the Mexicans, the Americans, and the Comanche. And the Comanche were the decisive, strongest player uh, in this battle. They had already bested the Spanish to the point where they had given up and they basically handed it over to uh, the Mexicans and said, here, you guys deal with this. This is your problem now. And after the Mexican-American War, when America partitioned part of Mexico and turned it into you know, parts of Texas and Arizona and New Mexico and California, I believe, and maybe Nevada, uh, there were irregulars who stayed in Mexico and took money from the Mexican government to hunt and kill um, Comanche and Apache. In this book, they're going after Apache. <coughs> but these are Comanche. So the setting here is that they're just kind of wandering around looking for them. And they're getting paid to scalp them. And they call the scalps receipts because they get a certain amount of money for each scalp. Now, this is a real-life group that this book is based on. There's a book called My Confession. Uh, it's hard to get. Last I knew it was out of print. I haven't looked for it in a while, but it was like $150, and it's basically a journal, or more like a memoir, excuse me, by a guy, I think his name was Samuel Chamberlain, and he tells the story. And um, obviously the Comanche Wars are very well documented. So this is a real life event. This was a real life group of filibusterers and quite a lot else in this book is real. It really happened. Now the way these Comanche bore down on them in this story, they came at them in a cloud of dust and it was a huge herd of horses and ponies that they were driving across the plain. And the Comanche were known to do this. They were horse thieves uh, and they kept huge herds of wild horses that they would use as their war horses as well and they would drive them across the Great Plains. And the way they would attack is that they would come at, they would ride forward towards a group, and they would only have a couple guys in the front, and then they would have a bunch of uh, unsaddled horses. And there were some other riders who would ride, not even I can't even call it side saddle. They would hang off the edge. They they would hang off the side of the horse. <coughs> you can watch videos on YouTube of people doing this. It's also depicted quite well. In uh, the Buster Scruggs movie, I think that's what it's called on Netflix, the series of vignettes by the Coen brothers. There's Comanche attacking that, and they're hanging off the side of the horses. So what they do is they come at them straight forward, and then they bank, and they turn to the side. That's why it said they came at them quarterwise in the book. So they keep the bare side of the horse to the enemy, and they can't see the riders hanging off the sides. And then at the last second, they spring up into the saddle and they shoot them with arrows. And the story goes that the reason why the whites ended up getting the upper hand over the Comanche around 1850 is because there was a repeater rifle invented. And they were able to fire. You notice in this story, uh, he's sitting on the ground and he's trying to reload his rifle. The repeater rifle was invented and it was they could finally outshoot the Comanches with their arrows. <laughs> the story is that uh, in the amount of time it took a soldier 
or settler to reload his rifle, a Comanche could get off six arrows. So there'd be six arrows in the sky coming directly at you while you were finishing up loading your rifle and trying to take aim. At a moving target, by the way. So uh, the Comanche really did attack like this in real life. And what's happening in this scene, uh, actually the scene immediately prior to it, is that they're going across uh, northern Mexico looking for Apache, and they come upon some pretty grisly sights. They come upon two ghost towns, but they also come upon uh, a big bush that has dead white babies hanging from it. Well, dead Mexican babies in this case. So it's quite haunting, and there are uh, all these signs that the Comanche have come through and basically wiped out the whole area. No no Mexicans were around. And uh, Captain White, who was the leader, he was referred to as the captain in those passages, was completely unprepared for this. He basically walked them right into a trap. And I don't know if the Mexican, it seems like the Mexican, the idea is that the Mexican helped walk them into this trap because at one point he's calling for him and he doesn't show up. So I don't know if he drove them into this attack or if he just ran away uh, and wasn't there. But either way, you notice a couple things in here. Uh, There was, he talked about how they jumped off their horses and they ran bow-legged like an alien. Uh, Supposedly, the Comanche were bow-legged people. And they were like stunted people who were cave dwellers. And they were actually preyed upon quite literally by uh, some neighbor uh, tribes. They came from Wyoming. And they lived in caves in Wyoming. And they were preyed upon by cave dwelling tribes who were cannibals. Or excuse me. They were the cave dwellers. The people who preyed upon them were the cannibals. So they were like literally like food for for their enemies. Uh, and they were stunted and dwarf-like and uh, bow-legged. And I suspect that the movie uh, Bone Tomahawk is at least in part based on, on this state of affairs. But once the Spanish arrived, uh, some of their horses went wild and started roaming across the plains. And in one of the most interesting historical, I would call it anomalies, uh, ever is that the Comanche took... And they had different names before that. They weren't the Comanche until they took to the horses. They took to the horses and they became, over time, you know, they were like really cut out for this. They became great horse breeders and great horse thieves. And in fact, the reason they got the name Comanche is because the Spanish dubbed them that because it means horse thief. Uh, That's what they called them. They... um, they became dominant, and these cannibal, this cannibal tribe remained cannibals, but they became, you know, uh, hated enemies of the Comanche. They're not in this book, but in real life, they they were killed and and massacred by uh, white settlers at times. But they tried to ally with them, and they did form alliances for a time because they hated the Comanche because the Comanche uh, completely dominated them. And they uh, they helped the whites fight against them. Now, I don't want to give too much more historical uh, context here because I'm really here to talk about the themes of the book and the literary merits of the book, but the historical setting is extremely fascinating 
and worth its own episode. Uh, the book Empire of the Summer Moon about the Comanche Wars is one of the best books I've ever read. It is highly recommended, and it gives you so much of the context of where of the setting that uh, Blood Meridian starts out in. And a couple more anecdotes from that book are that uh, you notice he mentions somebody's wearing a Dragoon's outfit. And another guy is wearing a Conquistador's outfit. And he's talking about, you know, ancient dents on the Conquistador's outfit that the wearer, the original wearer, sustained in Spain, you know, 300 years prior to these events. And another one had a top hat on. So something interesting is that their uh, dragoons were, I think, French troops, but they might have been Spanish troops. They were European troops uh, who existed in the 1700s, and their outfits looked like uh, a weird amalgamation of like conquistador and Dutch settler outfits, and it was like an armor set. And there are accounts by some settlers of seeing Comanche wearing conquistador's armor. And there are accounts of seeing Comanche wearing chain mail and uh, breastplates and, and the, the stereotypical Cortez outfits that you, you picture. So what probably happened, because it's known that the Comanche fought the Spanish back when the Spanish were like horse riders with lances before guns really were widespread. And, uh, of course, they had guns, right? But I already told you that it was... No match for the Comanches uh, shooting from the arrow, uh, shooting arrows from the back of the horse. And by the way, I'm o- I only mentioned one of their tactics, hiding, or hanging off the side of the horse. They did a whole bunch of acrobatics. Um, there are accounts of people seeing guys wearing these outfits, which means that they killed the conquistador 300 years prior and then passed the the armor down for hundreds of years and it had been you know part of their accoutrement all through the history of the tribe and uh same with the dragoon outfit and then the hat the top hat is interesting to note because uh there was a point in time one of the major reasons why the indians lost most of their wars uh ultimately you know lost their wars against the white settlers is part of it is because they didn't have like the european organizational fighting tactics they didn't have a tradition of warfare with tactics and uh you know learning in the field in the way that we did where we could we we have had a long tradition of fighting pitched battles and and warfare and things like that it was much more the stereotypical hit and run thing kind of doing it on the fly so for a, a big uh, group of cavalry to charge at another group of cavalry and uh, just kind of duke it out for the day and see whoever's got the most people alive at the end isn't really how they fought. Um, and it, it, they, don't, they didn't really like, uh, have like strategic planning, like waging war over a period of years where they would communicate with each other and come up with all these different plans. I mean, I think that kind of happened in the Northeast a little bit, but even when you read about that, you could tell that the Indians didn't really have the strategic, like they didn't have like a whole culture of uh, military leadership who were like studying Julius Caesar and things like that. So they would really just like perpetrate raids on villages and stuff like that. But there was one instance where the Comanches started to figure out that like Texas was really being settled 
And the Texas Rangers and the Texas Settlers were a serious threat, and they weren't going anywhere. And uh, they didn't care if the Comanche killed them. They, they, they would come and hunt them. You know, if the Comanche killed a couple of them, they would be hunted down basically until they found them. Uh, they weren't always victorious, though. There's some stories of, of Texans chasing them like a thousand miles across the plain only to lose instantly upon engagement and run away. Uh, but once they started to figure out, they apparently attacked some village or city uh, with, with like a thousand warriors... Uh, and just to show you what I mean about their lack of discipline, they sort of just kind of rampaged through the city and didn't do anything effective, and they, they scared everybody away and killed a bunch of people, and then it was over, and they all kind of, like, got drunk and uh, hung out and, like, faded away. They also caught, like, smallpox while they were there, and half of them died. But while they were there, they raided a hat factory <laughs> that made top hats. And there were reports later on about uh, Comanche being seen wearing top hats. And you notice one of the details in this raid this in, in the book was that one of them had a top hat on. So McCarthy knew all this. He took all this from these true accounts. That's why he had them dressed up this way. Now, I focus on this scene because it's one of the best scenes, but also because, well, the book's kind of famous for this scene, but it kind of sets the stage for what you're in for for the rest of the book. Because the whole book uh, is uh, the kid, who's one of the few survivors of this attack, who links up with another group of irregulars, and they just do the same thing. They wander around northern Mexico looking for Indians to kill and scalp. Uh, people have said this book is, like, plotless. And that's why they say that. Uh, it, it's not really plotless, but I, I get why they say that, because they, they're literally just wandering around... And they come to a village and they get drunk and they shoot everybody there. And um, they run into some Indians, but then they end up running afoul of the Mexican military. And the Mexican military starts to hunt them. And then they're on the run from the Mexican military and they run up to America. So uh, the point being, they're kind of just like aimlessly wandering around committing wanton violence. Um until most of them are dead. So, what I'd like to do... So I feel like that story is evocative of how the whole book goes. Because his descriptions and the fever pace that he writes at, he keeps that up, and they just... They get into different situations or different settings and sceneries which are just as absurd and just as hellish and nightmarish as that one are. Over and over and over again for the whole book. But what I'd like to do now is read a couple essays I wrote about Blood Meridian. And uh, they sort of complement each other in the sense that the second one was meant to be a follow-up to the first one. Because I kind of had to tie this up. It's about 2,500 words. And I had to end it. And I didn't feel like I totally got to say what I wanted to say. So I wrote the second essay, but... Be warned that not only are there spoilers, but the second essay doesn't talk that much about Blood Meridian. I ended up not talking about Blood Meridian that much. So I'll go back and uh, shed some light on what I mean and how it applies to the book. Now, for those of you who haven't read the book, this these essays will give you a good enough of a synopsis that you can... These essays can stand alone on their own. 
because they uh, they get at some themes that you know go beyond this book. And so here is my essay, "Forcing the Unity of Existence," which was published in Man's World. It's in the anniversary edition. And then the second essay is called War is the Father of Us All. It's Forcing the Unity of Existence, War and Judgment. Cormac McCarthy's masterpiece Blood Meridian follows the wanderings of an unnamed protagonist, the kid, whose life spans the settling of the American frontier. The novel opens with his birth under the Leonid meteor shower in 1833, making him 15 in 1848 when the action begins. The discovery of gold in California that year denotes the opening of the frontier, when emigrants began moving west in successive waves. However, this novel is concerned with another significant event of the same year, the end of the Mexican-American War. America's victory garnered it vast new territories, including parts of Texas, Arizona, and California, and the action takes place in all of these newly procured lands. The kid's death closes the story in 1878 at Fort Griffin, Texas, by 1879, Fort Griffin was mostly abandoned, and the American Census Bureau reported that by 1880, the West held no more unsettled territory. The life of the kid and the narrative of this novel follows the birth and death of a distinct era in American history. The novel plays out during the mapping of these territories, the overlaying of the open wilderness with boundaries and direction, the establishment of pathways for the movement of cattle, goods, capital, and people, the cataloging of all the plants and animals and people who live there for either their exploitation, relegation within certain boundaries, or wholesale eradication. When America came into this territory, it was still pregnant with untapped natural resources and ranged over by people and wild animals that lived according to the cyclical patterns of nature that went on unconcerned with the aims of civilization. America's mission was to fill the West with emigrants and stratify it with layers of grid work, from property lines and excavation tunnels to railways, bridges, fencing, and telegram cables. In other words, what went on with those years was the building of civilization from the ground up, carving order into chaos and setting up parameters to keep chaos out for good. The kid serves as a vector through which all of this passes, and although he acts, his actions have no major consequence for the circumstances in which he finds himself. Rather, he's caught up and carried along by the currents of history. Before the West can be settled, however, it must be pacified, and the majority of the book is concerned with this process. Early in the novel, the kid takes up first with Captain White and his band of filibusterers, and later the scalp-hunted Glanton gang, with whom he wanders, and in a sense, they also follow vectors across the territory, rather than routes such as railway, railroads, roads, or even a river or a trail. They range over open territory in search of plunder, and when that proves out of their grasp, they continue to wander until their dissolution, and even after that, the kid continues wandering, going wherever he can be useful and doing whatever needs to be done. The gang was made up of outlaws, drifters, and military veterans, and the kid himself was a runaway. Just as the winds and the rain blow wildly across the plains and the open desert, or herds of animals roam freely, so too does the Glanton gang range directionless around northern Mexico. Like the Plains Indians who cyclically follow the buffalo across the steppe, the Glanton gang wanders in search of natives to scalp, and when they wear out their welcome in Mexico, they retreat north with no goal and no destination, stopping only at the most convenient place for which they could pilfer emigrants heading west in the gold rush.
Their inherent aimlessness is not insignificant. Rather, it may be the most important detail about them. These men go wherever their violent impulses take them, where they may be used to earn a living. Established men of trade or office from back east, a city in New England or Ohio could never commit or withstand the extreme violence necessary for the lives of these men, nor the relentless exposure to the elements and overall deprivation of house, food, and any other resources for civilized living. The settling of civilization, the confrontation with the frontier, requires a certain type of man, a man who comes from outside the parameters of domesticity, whose survival is predicated not on the taming, taming of his violent impulses, as it would be for an urban or family man, but for the unfettered embellishment of those impulses. In civilization, these impulses would get a man jailed at best, executed at worst, but on the frontier, repressing them would lead to an even swifter death. Although these men are required for the pacification of the frontier, once that is done and the building begins, they become a hindrance. We see this in the novel over and over again. For example, in the beginning, when the kid meets Toadvine, they burn down a hotel for no reason, and soon afterwards, when the kid is denied whiskey for lack of money, he breaks two bottles over the bartender's head and stabs his eye out. The only way they know how to get what they want is violence, and it's expressly for this quality that the kid is invited first into Captain White's band and then later into Glanton's gang. These qualities cause them to run afoul of the Mexican government. When they massacre a peaceful settlement of natives and try to pass off the scalps as Apache warriors, and later try to do the same with the scalps of Mexican citizens. Once they become wanted men, they go into villages and their violent impulses are channeled into drinking, whoring, raping, murdering, and thievery, and they are repeatedly forced out under a hail of gunfire. Several members are killed this way, others hanged in San Diego, and the gang is eventually almost wiped out by a group of Indians. Once the gang is unemployed and on, and on the run, they retreat north and take up residence at a ferry over the Colorado River near Fort Yuma, Arizona. This is one of many real-life events covered in the novel. Several major characters are also based on real people. The gang kills the people running the ferry and begin operating it for their own enrichment, charging exorbitant fees, robbing their customers of all their possessions, and ex excluding natives from passage at all. Much of this took place in real life. But what's not mentioned in the novel is that this ferry was a major portal for emigrants going to California in the gold rush. In fact, the primary passage to California from the south and the southwest. Therefore, it served as a crucial vector for the civilization building process America was embarking on, and the Glanton gang was retarding that process. In real life, the gang also sabotaged or outright murdered the operators of two other fords along the river. And this is what provokes the Yuma Indians to attack the ferry, club Ganton to death, Glanton to death, and murder several others. As a result of this debacle, the U.S. military sends a contingent of troops to man the ferry and allow safe passage of emigrants for the next 30 years. Now, as an aside, I just want to mention that uh, this military coming to man the ford was not in the book. So if you've read the book or if you're familiar with the plot, uh, they get killed at Yuma Ferry and then they leave. The, pe the survivors leave. But the real story is that uh, uh, the U.S. military showed up to protect it. So in other words, it was originally run by a merchant that they killed. Um, their presence 
actively engage the U.S. military to come out there and uh, provide safe passage. So here we see in stark detail how their violent nature brings them in direct confrontation with developing civilization. In fact, it speeds up the progression of that development by bolstering the bulwarks against men such as themselves. As Nietzsche puts it in Twilight of the Idols, these men are required to build liberal institutions. In fact, war itself builds liberal institutions, and the type of man needed to make war is the truly free man. The institutions limit freedom, and they have no room for the man who does not subdue his natural violent instincts. The men who make up the Glanton gang, men like the kid, must themselves be forced out of civilization once it's up and running. So the second part of the essay is called Judgment. The first part was called War. This is called Judgment. One of the liberties McCarthy takes with the Yuma Ferry Massacre is to depict Judge Holden as fighting his way out by leveling a 12-pound howitzer cannon at the Indians and holding them at bay to make his escape. He wields it with his bare hands. The ball is 12 pounds. The cannon is much heavier. As one of several feats that give him a larger-than-life, perhaps even inhuman character. Much speculation surrounds the judge, even within the story itself, where one character remarks that he's never presided over any court case, that no one knows exactly what he's a judge of. Holden himself waxes philosophical quite a lot about war and the warrior type, some amalgamation of Nietzsche and Heraclitus, and maybe some of McCarthy's own impressions. It makes no difference what men think of war. War endures. But there's something more to the judge, something that stirs great curiosity and confusion in the men. And that is his knowledge and study of nature, the way he knows how to make gunpowder from bare materials at hand, the way he sketches plants and takes samples of dead things and saves them for study. Wrapped up in this one character is the generative power of war. And this is what this novel is about. It's a pre-apocalyptic novel in which nature is examined, captured, and exploited by the men who must make war upon it and its inhabitants in order to make way for the civilization that is to come. But these men, as we've seen, have no place within that civilization. In fact, they threaten its very existence. They must be removed, just as the judge says. War's nobility becomes dishonored once the dance of civilization begins, and the warrior must be subtracted. Once the warrior is removed, the dance becomes a false dance, and the dancers false dancers. They are no longer free men, as Nietzsche might call them. They are simply herd animals. And they need a judge to determine who among them is a threat, and it is his duty to remove them. Once the West is closing, the judge hunts down and finds the kid and must murder him. The wilderness in their midst must be tamed. Note a dancing bear is also murdered at the same time. Death stalks the crusader in the seventh seal, who outlived his time of war and now tries to return to peaceful society. And the judge stalks the kid at the closing as the closing of the West draws near. Judge Holden cannot allow a warrior to walk among the merchants and the politicians and the farmers and the women. Holden mocks mocks and taunts the kid in a paradoxical way, from an angle antithetical to the reason he must kill them. He tells the kid he wasn't cut out for war, that he suppressed his nature when he showed or tried to show mercy to several characters along the way, that he wasn't made of the right stuff for the life they had lived. Interestingly, the judge must remove him from the dance for the exact opposite reason. The kid represents an earlier, freer time, an area 
an era when a man was allowed, nay, required, to cultivate his killer instinct and use his violent nature to conquer the wild and carve out carve order out of chaos. As Nietzsche says, and Blood Meridian describes in bloody detail, liberal institutions have no place for this man with the wilderness inside him. Now, if you're a, a literary nerd like myself, and you read a book like Blood Meridian, and you're mystified by some of the themes, you may scour the internet for every single word ever written about this book that you could possibly find. And if you do that, you'll notice that there's lots of speculation on what does the judge represent. Is he a demon? Is he Satan? Is he Ahab or the whale himself? Is he a jinn? Uh, is he uh, a Gnostic archon? There's very strong arguments for all of these things. That he walks through a fire without getting burned. That's the argument that he's a demon or a jinn. He talks a lot about demons and imps from hell in this book. Much of this book is based on uh, Milton's Paradise Lost. And the judge and his filibusterers represent the demons fighting the angels. So there's speculation that he's Satan. He's a gigantic white albino who's completely bald and pale. He ends up with a sunburn at the end, but for the most part, he spends the book uh, totally white and pale, not not tanned by the sun at all. Uh, in a in a spectral way, in an in an unnatural way, McCarthy's excellent at making things seem supernatural without making them seem downright fantastic. So there's speculation that uh, he's perhaps based on the white whale. And there's a lot of allusion in this book to, to Moby Dick. Perhaps if I have time and I think of it later, I'll, I'll draw some of those connections. But my argument is he is death. He's the Grim Reaper, and then he's based on the character of death from the Seventh Seal. And in fact, this book is more based on the Seventh Seal than people realize. Uh... Now, the judge tells the kid that he has to kill him for two reasons. Well, for one reason, but he gives two examples. He showed mercy to two wounded soldiers. One of them was shot, and he was asking for water. But he was also asking for the kid to kill him. And the kid doesn't kill him. He gives him water, and he leaves him there. But, of course, he died. He, he was out in the wilderness. And then the other time, uh, the kid ran away. They were being hunted by the Mexican army, and he ran away. And he uh, abandoned a wounded comrade to be captured and executed. So the judge said that, you're not one of us, really. You were just faking the whole time. And now I'm coming to collect, uh, because I know what you are. I know what you really are. And and you're not a killer. This is patently false. Um the kid is a killer. He's brutally violent. But he shows mercy to these people. And there's another scene later. Uh, well, not after this scene because this is the last scene in the book. But there's another scene far later after he's not with the judge anymore. But I think the judge might even hint that he knows about this. Where he finds an old woman hiding in a cave and he tries to help her and tries to give her water. And he knows that her people were all massacred by soldiers. But it turns out it was really a corpse. So the, the kid shows mercy here, 
And um, this is, of course, weakness. Mercy is weakness. And he arguably made it worse for his comrades by not putting them out of their misery. Uh, and if you have somebody in your midst like that, you they could be a liability. Now, this is a theme that McCarthy revisits. Uh, this is exactly the problem for the main character, uh, Josh Breslin's... Uh, forgetting his name. I think it's Josh Breslin. The main character, the whole reason why he ends up being stalked by Anton Chigurh is because when he comes across the massacred drug dealers and steals their money, he finds one who's dying and he offers him a sip of water and he keeps thinking about it so he has to go back and give him the water. And that's how Chigurh finds who he is and he tracks him down and causes all kinds of problems. So we see that this uh, giving of mercy in this guy who's supposed to be a killer basically shows that he doesn't have the stuff. He's not up to snuff. And this is his weakness that costs his life. This theme is used twice in McCarthy. But there's also a scene in The Seventh Seal where uh, the Crusader character is with his entourage and there's a young woman who was abused. And I, I think it's it's uh, implied that she was raped. She's basically kept as a servant by this guy. And the Crusader character saves her from this guy. And they come upon him later, and he's dying of the plague. And she wants to go give him water to give him mercy while he's dying. And the Crusader stops her. He puts his hand out, and he, he disallows her to do that. Why does he disallow her to do that? Well... Is it because the guy doesn't deserve it? Because uh, he, he uh, you know, was trying to rape her? Or is it because she would contract the plague by giving him water and bring it back to everyone else? And he was using his better judgment. I can't help but think that this is part of why McCarthy uses this theme repeatedly of a man going to give someone water as mercy and then being haunted forever by it unto death. So that's one reason why I think he this book is partially based on themes from the Seventh Seal. I'm not saying it's a retelling of the story and why I think the judge is uh, the Grim Reaper. Modeled on the Grim Reaper, of course, because he's um, a tall, pale, pasty albino. But there's something else that makes me think of the seventh seal. And the first time I saw the seventh seal, I'd already read this book and it just kind of hit me like a thunderclap, like, holy shit, this is the last scene of Blood Meridian. So I'm going to do some more reading. Tonight's episode is rife with reading. I'm going to keep in mind the essay that I read, okay? I'm going to read some quotes from the book, then I'm going to read a quote from Nietzsche. Then I'm going to read from the seventh seal. So here's the judge talking to the kid. He poured the tumbler full. Drink it up, he said. The world goes on. We have dancing nightly, and this night is no exception. By the way, I should mention for those uh, who are out of context here, the judge hasn't seen the kid in like... The kid hasn't seen the judge in like 25 years. And he just kind of walks up to him at a at a saloon where he's drinking at the bar. And the judge 
The kid was 15 uh, when he hooked up with the Glanton gang. And he's like 40 now, if you do the math. I think he's about 40. But uh, the judge was already a grown man, probably in his at least 30s, probably 40s, during the main action. And uh, he makes it a point to say that he hasn't aged. Uh, he hasn't aged at all. So listen to this. He poured the tumbler full. Drink up, he said. The world goes on. We have dancing nightly, and this night is no exception. The straight and the winding way are one. And now that you are here, what do the years count since last we two met together? Men's memories are uncertain, and the past that was differs little from the past that was not. He took up the tumbler the judge had poured, and he drank and set it down again. He looked at the judge. I've been everywhere, he said. This is just one more place. The judge arched his eyebrow. Did you post witnesses, he said, to report to you on the continuing existence of those places you'd once quit them? That's crazy. Is it? Where is yesterday? Where is Glanton and Brown, and where is the priest? He leaned closer. Where is Shelby, whom you left to the mercies of Elias in the desert? And where is Tate, whom you abandoned in the mountains? Where are the ladies, ah, the fair tender ladies with whom you dance at the governor's ball when you were a hero anointed with the blood of the enemies of the republic you'd elected to defend? And where is the fiddler? And where is the dance? This is the kid speaking now. Well, I guess you can tell me. This is the judge again. I tell you this. As war becomes dishonored and its nobility called into question... Those honorable men who recognize the sanctity of blood will become excluded from the dance, which is the warrior's right, and thereby will the dance become a false dance and the dancers false dancers. And yet there will be one who always who is the true dancer. And can you guess who that might be? And the kid replies, you ain't nothing. And the judge comes back, you speak truer than you know, but I will tell you, only that man who has offered up himself entirety to the blood of war, who has been to the floor of the pit and seen horror in the round and learned at last that it speaks to his innermost heart, only that man can dance. And the kid retorts, even a dumb animal can dance. The judge set the bottle on the bar. Hear me, man, he said. There is no room on the stage for one beast and one alone. All others are destined for a night that is eternal and without name. One by one they will step down into the darkness before the footlamps. Bears the dance and bears that don't. So listen, he says, The dance will become a false dance and the dancers false dancers. And yet there will be one there always who is a true dancer. And can you guess who that might be? And then he says, hear me, man, he said, there is no room on the stage for one beast, excuse me, there is room on the stage for one beast and one alone. I think what he's saying, I think he's talking about death. I think he's saying death is the true dancer and death is the only beast on the stage. So he's talking about uh, the warrior is removed and the dance becomes a false dance. And here is a long passage from Nietzsche in Twilight of the Idols. And by the way, I had read this book twice. 
and I hadn't had all this figured out, and it was when I read this book, Twilight of the Idols, that the whole thing hit me. The whole thing made sense to me. So this is aphorism 38 in Twilight of the Idols. Well, it's aphorism 38 in one particular chapter. I think it's chapter 4. And it's called My Concept of Freedom. The worth of a thing lies sometimes not in what one attains with it, but in what one pays for it, what it costs us. I'll give an example. Liberal institutions immediately cease to be liberal as soon as they are attained. Afterwards, there are no more mischievous or more radical enemies of freedom than liberal institutions. One knows well enough what they accomplish. They undermine the will to power. They are the leveling of mountain and valley exalted into morality. They make people small, cowardly, and voluptuous. With them, the hurting always begins. Excuse me. With them, the hurting animal always triumphs. Liberalism that is increased hurting animality. The same institutions produce quite other results as long as they are fought for. They then, in fact, further freedom in a powerful manner. On looking more accurately, we see that it is warfare which produces these results, warfare for liberal institutions, which as war allows illiberal instincts to continue. And warfare educates for freedom. For what is freedom? To have the will to be responsible for oneself, to keep the distance which separates us, to become more indifferent to hardship, severity, privation, and even to life, to be ready to sacrifice men for one's cause, oneself not accepted. Freedom implies that manly instincts, instincts which delight in war and triumph and dominate over the other instincts. For example, over the instinct of happiness. The man who has become free, how much more the spirit which has become free, treads underfoot the contemptible species of well-being dreamt of by shopkeepers, Christian, cows, women, Englishmen, and other Democrats. The free man is a warrior. So think about that. I juxtapose the the New Englander or the Ohio businessman uh with the filibusterer and that the Ohio businessman would die pretty much immediately if he went out to the frontier while the filibusterer would end up in prison or executed immediately if he went into civilization, which is of course what happens in this book. And I hope it's quite clear the Nietzschean undertones of the quotes I read by the judge. And I hope Heraclitus, I hope you all are hearing Heraclitus in this too, because I'm going to read, uh, another essay, but the reason why I specified Ohio, right, is if you saw the movie Dead Man, there's uh, an accountant who gets sent out to California when California was still, uh, you know, barely settled. It was during the gold rush, of course, an accountant is going out there to help people count their money, and track their money, and uh, he has an affair with someone, and the husband comes in and shoots him in the heart. And then he goes on an adventure with an Indian uh, across the uh, the frontier, basically, in Northern California. And he kind of turns into a killer like this. Um, they run into trappers. They run into uh, a mercenary bounty hunter who's looking for them. They run into Indians that they have to fight. And uh, I feel that that film 
shows some of the same themes as uh, Blood Meridian in that uh, this guy sort of becomes one of these killers, one of these killer types, but he still dies. I mean, the name of the movie is Dead Man, so it's sort of a commentary, I think, on the type of man bred for this, right? Uh, Only a certain type of man is bred for this. And the thing about what the judge says about why he's killing the kid, about how the kid wasn't cut out for it, one of the interesting things you have to think about and where the judge, I think what the judge is talking about is that most of the kid's companions were either lifelong criminals who had like already done prison time or they were veterans of the Mexican-American War, which uh, had some pretty brutal fighting in it. I mean, it doesn't get into the details in this book about what some of the action these guys saw, but I know that there was a lot of like running street battles and house-to-house fighting in Mexico, and it was pretty brutal. Not to mention fighting the Comanche and the Apache out on the plains was also a, a harrowing experience. And the kid was the only one of these people who was young. He was the only one of these people that wasn't really born and bred in any of this. He was just an orphan kind of drifting around, and Toadvine, one of the other characters in the gang, meets him, gets in a fucking brutal knockdown dragout fight with him. Uh, they kind of fight to a standstill. But remember, the kid's like 15, and then Toadvine's like, hey, I owe the owner of this hotel money. Let's, let's burn the fucking hotel down. And the kid's like, okay, sure, let's do it. So they burn it down. So this kid is basically just a delinquent uh, orphan. And Toadvine tells the filibusters, like, hey, I know this kid, he's a pretty pretty savage kid, why don't you go recruit him? But he's the only one of the guys who isn't a veteran. He's the only one of the guys who isn't already a hardened fucking outlaw. So I think that's part of what the judge is saying, like, you were never really one of us. Uh, and And I know that because you showed mercy to these people when mercy was not what was needed. And this is what Nietzsche is talking about. The instinct to war is the instinct for the truly free man that wins out over all others. And he names in this book uh, happiness. But another thing Nietzsche denigrates quite a lot elsewhere is pity and mercy. And he's saying the will to pity and mercy is weakness uh, and it's it's something for a degenerate herd animal to to show. And that it's actually not, here's the key, it's actually not a moral good to take pity on someone. It makes you feel good in the moment. But at the end of the day, taking pity on someone and showing mercy is actually worse for everyone. And don't we see that? When I talked about the seventh seal, the warrior, the true warrior who was a warrior in his spirit and he wasn't just a, a, a kid who kind of had had a bad uh, a bad go of it for a while? Uh, he knew that that showing that guy mercy could have potentially infected everyone with the plague, and that uh, stopping her from giving him water and showing him mercy was actually the the smart thing to do. Whereas when the kid gives uh, water to the other guy, the judge tells him no. That was actually well, the judge doesn't say this, but it's implied that it was worse for him because he was captured or he died a much more miserable death because the kid wouldn't put him out of his misery. And the same thing with Josh Brolin's character. Uh, I got his name wrong before. The character he gave water to still died. Um, and and a lot more people that didn't have to die also died because of that mercy. So I think that's the message here. 
Now, I, I need you to keep all of these themes in mind. Uh, because I'm going to read my last essay and then I'll open it up to commentary. But before I do that, I want to make one more parallel. Kind of the key parallel here to point out my argument that the judge is supposed to be death and he's based on the character of death from the seventh seal. And if you notice, but keep everything I said in mind because it all, this is really a digression. I should really read the next essay because all the themes I'm talking about are uh, elaborated on in this other essay. But I want to make this quick aside though because, hang on, I gotta find this. The, if you notice, the judge mentioned a fiddler. When he was talking to the kid, he mentioned a fiddler in the dance, right? Now think about this. At the end of the seventh seal, if you've seen the movie, uh, some of the people that were in the in the um, entourage of the crusader, a husband and wife with a baby, are looking on a ridge line, are looking on a hill. And they see a line of people dancing across the hill, and they notice that all the dancers are the people that had been with them on their journey and had died, and that the Grim Reaper is uh, leading the procession. The Grim Reaper is walking along, and they're all dancing behind him and walking, and they're all dead, and they're all you know going to purgatory or heaven. But let me read the quote. Let me read what he says. This is like the closing of the movie. This is what he says as he watches this procession of people dancing. He says, Mia, I see them, Mia, I see them. Over there against the stormy sky, there they all are. The Smith and Lisa, the Knight, Raval, Johns, and Scat, and the strict master Death bids them dance. He wants them to hold hands and to tread the dance in a long line. At the head goes the strict master with the scythe and the hourglass, but the fool brings up the rear with his lute. They move away they move away from the dawn in a solemn dance away towards the dark lands while the rain cleanses their cheeks and the salt from their bitter tears. Now I should mention Jans, the character Jans that he names is the guy who was dying of the plague that the girl wanted to give water to. And notice in this very short essay, or excuse me, in this very short quote, he uses the word dance multiple times. And he mentions the fool. Death and the Fool are both tarot cards, right? And they make... Uh, McCarthy makes a big deal about tarot cards in this because they go... Uh, the Glanton gang goes to a, 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 a soothsayer. They go to a fortune teller, Mexican-Indian fortune teller. And they all get their fortunes told. And in this book, uh, Notes on Blood Meridian, which you have to read if you're a fan of this book because it's extremely enlightening... He goes through and gives great detailed accounts of what the tarot card readings they get, uh, how it's significant. And there's people who argue that everything that plays out in the book after that scene is foretold in the tarot cards. But it's a pretty abstract argument. I'm not really going to get into it except to say that you note here in the seventh seal that uh, the death and the fool tarot cards are um, like bookending the film. Or they're bookending the procession of dancers, and they're coming at the end of the film. And McCarthy makes uh, a big deal about tarot cards, and the kid is the Four of Cups. 
And much argumentation and speculation has been made about why he's the Four of Cups. I'm not going to get into that. I'm just pointing out a parallel. So here it is. Mia. I see them, Mia. I see them over there against the stormy sky. They are all there. The Smith and Lisa, the Knight, Raval, Jans, and Scat. And the strict Master Death bids them dance. He wants them to hold hands and to tread the dance in a long line. At the head goes the strict master with the scythe in the hourglass, but the fool brings up the rear with his lute. They move away from the dawn in a, sol- in a solemn dance towards the dark lands where the rain cleanses their cheeks and the salt from their bitter tears. Now here's the last paragraph of the entire book of Blood Meridian. And they are dancing. The board floor slamming under the jackboots and the fiddler grinning hideously over their canted pieces. Towering over them all is the judge, and he is naked and dancing, his small feet lively and quick and now in double time and bowing to the ladies, huge and pale and hairless like an enormous infant. He never sleeps, he says. He says he'll never die. He bows to the fiddler and sashays backwards and throws back his head and laughs deep in his throat, and he is a great favorite, the judge. He wants his hat, and the lunar dome of his skull passes palely under the lamps, and he swings about and takes possession of one of the fiddles, and he pirouettes and makes a pass, two passes, dancing and fiddling at once. His feet are light and nimble. He never sleeps. He says that he will never die. He dances in light and in shadow, and he is a great favorite. He never sleeps, the judge. He is dancing, dancing, and he says that he will never die. So my contention here is that this scene is based directly on the last scene of the seventh seal, and that the judge (coughs) is the character of death in Blood Meridian based on the seventh seal. I'm going to read my other essay here, and then we'll talk. Uh, But I want to say, for those of you who've read this book, the epilogue is extremely important. And the epilogue is directly tied in and crucial to understanding all the themes I'm talking about, about the herd animal and the illiberal animal. (coughs) Excuse me, guys. When I'm recording a podcast on my own, I could just stop and you don't have to hear all this, but you're doing it live. Um... You have to read the epilogue. Maybe we'll talk about the epilogue. If you're in the audience and you want to talk about the book when I'm done, uh, you can bring the epilogue up and we'll talk about it. But I just have to mention that leaving the epilogue out misses some things and it it fails to totally drive my argument home if I don't bring it up. But I think I've made the argument strongly enough that I can leave it out. But uh, who knows? Maybe after I read this, I'll feel like it. So the name of this essay is called War is the Father of Us All. And this was intended to be a direct follow-up to the previous essay and only focus on Blood Meridian, but I ended up going off script. War is the Father of Us All. Heraclitus continues, He renders some gods, some men, some slaves and others free. As the patriarch of civilizations, war has the power to build us up from the muck of nature and the heights of culture. Complex art, towering architecture, stable institutions, advanced science, 
Conversely, war also holds the power to lay flourishing civilizations low, to smite them in her hubris, dismantle all they've built, and hand it over to a more worthy son. <clears throat> to make civilization, people must know how to make war. Some cultures are better than others at it, but also some cult cultures are better at certain times at making war than they are at other times. The same culture brought down by war may be the one who, in times gone by, built itself up on war. The Peninsular Republic of Rome became a Mediterranean empire through centuries of continuous war, both with its neighbors and with itself. They came to war as strong men, but it was war that made them great. But the Pax Romana that ensued from the hegemony also led to their weakness, their sloth, and their pampering. They no longer had the stomach for war. As such, the Germans dismantled their civilization and took its revenue for themselves and went on to reshape Europe into the world-dominating culture we know today. And America made itself on war. As avowed pacifist Howard Zinn details in The People's History of the United States, which is a book that I disavow and fucking hate, but I'm bringing it up for a reason here. America was built on continuous war with Indians, with the British, Mexico, itself, the world. Zinn and the left see this as a bad thing. The conclusion, I presume, is that this civilization built thereby is unworthy of the lives lost in the process. But once a threshold is crossed, some ineffable metaphysical cultural peak, this war-making begins to eat away at a culture and contribute to its downfall. Perhaps the left sees this downgrading of American quality of life and its he hegemonic diminishment on the world stage in the wake of blundering in war, Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, as well-deserved for past transgressions, for the crimes of waging war, excuse me, for the crimes of waging an unjust war. The right, for its part, perhaps believes these wars were not only justified, but blunders directly because we didn't wage war hard enough. Maybe some have suggested, like Patton urging us to roll our tanks on Moscow, or Kissinger bombing Laos, the only way to victory is through total war. But as Judge Holden points out, it makes no difference what they think of war. War is. When civilization reaches a point at which it seems maybe war isn't necessary, or perhaps isn't the best strategy for accomplishing its goals, it matters not. War endures. Whether we have the stomach for it or not, war presents itself, and we make of it what we can. And while Judge Holden waxes philosophical on the inevitability of war, Colonel Kurtz laments the loss of will needed to meet with war. Kurtz tells a story about when he and a group of special forces inoculated a village. The Viet Cong came through and hacked off the arms of the children and left them in a pile. Kurtz's famous comments... Horror, the horror, refer to the strength of will necessary to face the horror of war, to hack off the arms of your children if they've been contaminated by contact with the enemy. This is why Kurtz goes natives. He realizes that his men, his country, and his people no longer have the will to face the horror, to kill without judgment. The very act of inoculating children against Excuse me. The very act of inoculating children precludes that. So he tells Willard, Kill me because you must, but do not pass judgment on me. 
When you do that, when you kill because one thing is right and another thing is wrong, you start down the path towards losing. You start down the path towards losing will and making value judgments about war. And as Holden tells us, our value judgment on war is as useless as passing a value judgment on stone. This is why the judge says he must kill the kid, because the kid doesn't have the will necessary to kill without judgment. Remember, the kid showed mercy to one of his compatriots, giving him water and leaving him beneath a bush, when really what needed to be done was an execution. Some might even call it a mercy killing. This is the same exact thing that leads to the death of Lulin Moss at the hands of Anton Chigurh. Moss showed mercy to the wounded cartel member by giving him water, and this leads to the death of himself and so many others at the hands of Chigurh. That is why the country is not for old men and why war is not for old civilizations. They don't have the stomach for it anymore. Now, I don't know if you've seen uh, The Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood. It's a great movie. It's about the same thing. This movie takes place after the West is closed. So my argument is here. In Blood Meridian, in The Seventh Seal, uh, and in... uh, No Country for Old Men, excuse me, and in The Unforgiven. The time of war is over. The time of liberal institution building has ended, and the institutions are up and running. Uh, Europe was a brand new civilization. Christendom was brand new in Europe when uh, the Crusades were called in the year 1100. Uh, 1066 had just happened. After 1066, uh, the, the political setup in England... And in Germany, a little bit later, uh, the kings who started to rule around the 10th and 11th century, their dynasties lasted, and in France as well, their dynasties lasted a long, long time. And they got to the work of, like, developing European civilization. While this was happening, while they were in this nascent phase and they were early, uh, early phase... They made war on their neighbors because that's what a young, vigorous, full-of-life civilization does. It makes war on its neighbors. But once it's time to come back from war, right, the crusader or the soldier, like, he can't act like that anymore. This is this is the whole thing with Rambo and Taxi Driver. They get thrown back into, into regular civilization and uh, they don't know how to survive. They don't know how to survive, and they, they start, like, hunting the people around them in regular civilization because they're still warriors. They're still soldiers, and killing is the only thing they know how to do. So when they see people who who uh, are violating uh, their moral code, the only way they know how to handle it is to kill them. Uh, so this is what Nietzsche is talking about. This is what the judge is talking about. The warrior can't be in normal civilization. Because he doesn't abide by the same rules. And he doesn't... He rejoices only in the instinct of war. But metaphorically speaking, if uh, the time period is over, the Crusades are over, or the West is closed, then we're in a new era now. We are no longer in the time of the warrior. And I think this is what Clint Eastwood's character represents in The Unforgiven. Because if you remember, he's with a younger guy. And I talked about how the kid, like, was younger than everybody else in the gang, right? And the kid was the only one who wasn't a veteran or, or a hardened criminal. 
So he didn't really have like the real stomach for doing what had to be done when push came to shove. And if you notice in the Unforgiven, the same thing happens. The young guy wants to kill like this this guy maims and and hurts and rapes a prostitute. So the prostitutes all put money together and raise a bounty and say, you know, we want somebody to kill this guy. So the kid takes up the call, but he recruits Clint Eastwood because Clint Eastwood's the grizzled old uh, frontiersman with a reputation for being a killer. Neither one of them have the stomach for it, though. There's two different scenes, and it's significant. I'm using the word stomach in that essay and right now on purpose because... The kid, the young kid in The Unforgiven is taking aim at one of the guys that they're hunting. And he can't pull the trigger. And he can't do it. And he finally gives the gun to Clint Eastwood. And Clint Eastwood shoots him in the stomach. And it's a grisly, brutal, disturbing death. And Clint Eastwood looks disgusted by it. And the kid that's with him is very upset by it. And what ends up happening is that Clint Eastwood, the guy he shoots in the stomach, starts screaming for water. And Clint Eastwood says, give him some water, goddammit. And he doesn't shoot. He lets the guys come out of cover to give the guy some water. There's the same theme coming up again. And then later, when the young kid decides to kill someone who was the real perpetrator, the first guy was just an accomplice, he also shoots him in the stomach while he's taking a shit in, in an outhouse, I should add. Because that's also what happens at the end of Blood Meridian. The kid goes to the outhouse, and the judge follows him into the outhouse and kills him. Uh, and the kid is disgusted by it. The young kid in Unforgiven is disgusted by it. <clears throat> and he's like, doesn't turn into an outlaw which was his dream. He doesn't turn into a hero, and he doesn't feel good about it. Clint Eastwood doesn't feel good about it either. And now there's a final standoff that Clint Eastwood has to do because he has to take revenge for his uh, friend who got killed along the way. But he disappears after that. He doesn't start back his life as an outlaw to make a bunch of money, and the young kid doesn't become an outlaw either. And it's not just because of these individuals. They're, they're making a comment that the West is closed and the time of this type of man is over and the culture itself doesn't have to go about you know partaking in violence in that way. Uh, and the culture doesn't have the stomach for it. So in Apocalypse Now, when Kurtz goes native, he goes native because he realizes that the Viet Cong are still in that younger phase where, they're, where they still have the stomach for it. He sees that they cut off the arms of their own children because they had been uh, tarnished by the enemy. He realizes, like, I'm on the wrong fucking side. My people don't have the don't have what it takes to do this. My people my people are out here trying to like give charity and give pity and give mercy to these people. That's not how you wage a war. You have to be a merciless killer and you have to face the horror of war. <laughs> 